0: Okay, so let's uh, carry on with with the series that we're in. We're in this series that we've called Dear Church, as in D-E-A-R Church, not the alternative. So uh, this is a, a series of letters that we've got in our New Testament. So in the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Book of Revelation, when you're going through it, you quickly get to the second and the third chapter, and they've got this bizarre thing. You've got seven letters that were dictated by Jesus to seven churches. Okay, So these were seven churches in what we would call Turkey. They kind of followed a bit of a a road around. You could go from the first to the seventh and sort of do the walk if you were, well, it's a bit of a long walk, but you could do the journey, roughly 20, 30 miles between each one. And Jesus sent these seven letters to these seven churches, and in each case, he had a message specifically for them. And what we found as we've gone through it is that even though we are none of those churches... Like We are Trinity Chippenham that meets in Chippenham and is called Trinity Chippenham. Like that's this church, right? We're not the church in Thyatira or the church in Sardis, but every single one of the letters seems to be so relevant even to us 2,000 years later. Okay, so we're going through this series and we're, we're kind of reading other people's posts, reading letters that were written to these other churches and finding that Jesus is speaking to us as we go. Now today we are going to go uh, to the place called Philadelphia, which is kind of a cool word, isn't it? Maybe some of you are thinking of cream cheese right now and how refreshing that would be, uh, or even just being next to it in a fridge would be lovely, wouldn't it? Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. Some of you may be thinking of um, the American Philadelphia and fresh prints and other things that are connected to that. I'm not talking about that either. We're talking about this town in Turkey. And it was named Philadelphia after the person who founded it who was the younger brother of his older brother and he loved his older brother and he built this town and so it got named after him. He was this loving brother and it's the town of brotherly love, which is kind of cool, love of brothers, right? That's Philadelphia. And it was a young town, it had only been there for a couple of centuries. It wasn't a huge town, it wasn't like significant, it wasn't massively strategic. It was just kind of a small town that actually had gone through some tough times. In AD 17, now this is written at the end of that century, so kind of 80-ish years before, 75 years before... They'd had a, an earthquake in the region. This earthquake had uh, kind of rocked their world, literally. It meant that uh, they, they struggled to, to kind of live stable lives. They, they had buildings, they had cracks in the walls that were never fixed. Uh, a lot of the people, because of the aftershocks and the kind of uh, the, the weirdness of living through that earthquake, would live outside of the town. They would sort of camp and farm rather than coming back into the town because they just didn't feel safe. And so here was a a small town with the people feeling like, ah, you know, we're not safe, we're not secure. Now, fast forward to the time when Jesus wrote or dictated this letter, and something had just happened to them. They'd been a town that had been honored by the emperor. They'd been allowed to kind of put his name up and, uh, and declare that they were, you know, a certain kind of town within the Roman Empire. And for whatever reason, the emperor had just given an edict maybe two, three years before this is written, that 50% of their vines should be cut down and they were not allowed to plant new ones. Now, it could be that he was protecting the Italian wine culture, you know, just uh, there's a a winery rising up in Philadelphia, let's just chop it down. Maybe there was some other motive, but whatever it meant, it meant that these people were living with 50% of their major industry just destroyed by an edict. They felt betrayed, they felt hurt, they felt picked on. You don't just grow a vine in a week. It takes a long time before a vine starts to generate fruit. And they weren't allowed to replant. And so they'd had this earthquake a generation or two before. Now they'd had this uh, kind of destruction of their industry from the person that they were supposed to be connected to and honoring. And everything just felt really shaky. They felt insignificant, they felt weak, they felt like their lives did not amount to much. And really, what hope was there? And so Jesus writes a letter to a church in that circumstance. And in doing so, I think he's written a letter that comes across to every person and every church that feels weak, that feels like circumstances have conspired against That feels like there are cracks in the walls, and I don't trust where I am. It feels like my life could collapse. It feels like this church isn't very impressive. It feels like uh, you know we don't know what the future holds. Do you ever feel weak? Ever feel like your health is kind of precariously balanced and it could suddenly go? Ever feel like your income could disappear in a heartbeat? Ever feel like uh, the stability that you see in other people's lives is not the stability you feel in your own? And maybe uh, you experience that not just individually, but on a church level. You ever walk into church on a Sunday and kind of feel like, this isn't very big, is it? Today, we've got a great number here. This is kind of one of our highest attendances. But still, all it takes is to visit one big church and it suddenly sends you into a bit of a spin. Or turn on the TV and see a church with tens of thousands of people. And then you walk into church and, you know, we're just putting the chairs out and we can't find the cable to, you know, get the monitor working. And it can feel kind of small. It can feel kind of flimsy. You know, we're renting this room. What if they stop letting us rent it? There's all these sorts of, I hope I'm not creating all sorts of concerns for you. But we could, couldn't we? We could feel like, I don't feel safe. My church doesn't feel safe. Life doesn't feel safe. Well, I want us to see the letter to the Philadelphian church because this is a letter to Christians and to churches that are feeling weak. Let me read it to you. It's on page 1029 in the church Bibles. So Revelation, you'll see the big number three, that's the chapter. Then there's little, letters, little numbers at the start of the sentences. Those are the verses And if you go down to verse 7, you'll see a little title to the church in Philadelphia. Okay, let me read it to you. It says this To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold. because you have kept my word about patient endurance i will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth i am coming soon hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown the one who conquers i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. There it is. That's the letter. Now there's some things in there that you might go, oh, that's complex. That's kind of weird. It's not normal uh, language for us. Some of the references there, but we'll work our way through it and make sense of it one thing I want you to notice if you've been here through the rest of the series especially the last kind of two or three weeks some of the messages have felt pretty hard hitting haven't they it's like Jesus has not held back he's kind of he's put some punches in there really out of love to challenge churches where they were going astray think of uh, last week's Sardis you're very impressive and you look like you're alive but you're dead oh that's pretty harsh stuff There's nothing like that in this letter, is there? There's no, but you do this wrong, or but I don't like this about you. There's no criticism. There's no call to repentance. There's no, you need to get this fixed. And I kind of love that about Jesus, that when he's with someone who's weak and who's broken and who's struggling, he doesn't lay on an extra burden. Have you noticed that? When you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when you see the stories of Jesus, he's very ready to challenge the kind of religiously powerful types. But those that are hurting, those that are struggling under the burden of life and so on, he doesn't pressure them. He doesn't add extra kind of commandments. He gently coaxes them along. He gently brings them forward. It's the kind of God that we have. He knows exactly what we can take. And it may be that there's some of us here today who are kind of thinking, I can't take another hard-hitting message. I can't, can't cope with that because of what's happened this week or what's going on in my life. Jesus knows that. And when we need to just be held and just be encouraged and just be urged to keep going, he's able to give that to us. Now, the description of Jesus at the start of this uh, is quite simple, I suppose. He's the holy one and the true one. Holy means set apart from everything that's sinful and bad. He's, he's pure, he's good, he's holy, and he's true. I, I think of that in, in two ways. Both everything he says and everything he does is technically true, but also he's true in the sense of trustworthy, faithful. He's forever yours, forever true. That old use of the word true in English is, is kind of a faithfulness concept. And Jesus, who is perfect, is perfectly faithful. Faithful to his promises, faithful to his people. And then he says, um, he opens and no one will shut He shuts and no one opens because he has the key of David. This is a bit of a kind of random Old Testament reference, but way back in Isaiah, it was kind of like the Secretary of State or the Prime Minister or somebody had the key. It's like they have the key. They can open the door, shut the door. They can say who's in, they can say who's out. It was like the ultimate kind of power thing, I suppose. And Jesus is the one who has the key. If Jesus opens a door, the door is open. If Jesus shuts the door, the door is shut. It's, it's kind of a, uh, an image of how powerful and how uh, important Jesus is. And so then when it goes on, verse eight, Jesus says, I know your works. He says that all the time in all the, all the letters. I know you, I know where you dwell, I know your works. He knows his people. And he says, I know your works and I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, I suppose there's different ways of of thinking about that. If you've grown up in church world... some of the other letters that Paul wrote, for example, talk about, I have an open door before me for ministry. And so that's kind of language that's been taken up in church world so that in prayer meetings, sometimes we'll pray, Lord, would you open a door you know, for the gospel in Chippenham or open the door in North Africa? And we kind of talk about doors as if there's these great doors all over the planet. It's just kind of Christian code language for the, that idea of if, if God opens the door, there's a way through. Okay, so it could be that Jesus is saying, hey, church in Philadelphia, I've opened the door of ministry opportunity for you and no one can shut it. And it could mean that, but I don't think it does. I think it's more fundamental, more basic than that. I think what he's saying to them is, I've opened the door of the kingdom of God to you. If you like, I've opened the gates of heaven to you. I've, I've made it so that you can come and be a part of who I am and my people and my bride and all those images, all those words. I, I've, come, I've made it possible for you to come into heaven to be with me you can take it at that level. I've I've created a way and you're welcome in and no one can shut it. And you'll notice if your eyes skim down that that he talks about the Jews, these people in a synagogue of Satan, that's not what they would have called themselves, but that's what Jesus calls them, because this is the Jewish community in the town, and they are antagonistic to the Christians, they are harsh, they are making it tough to be a follower of Jesus, and Jesus says, look, they're not true Jews, they're not God's people, They are a synagogue of Satan. And I think what's going on is that these Jews in this town are making it really difficult for the Christians. They're really giving them a hard time. They're really challenging them. And part of that is they're saying, look, you're not God's people, we are. And Jesus is just saying to these Christians, I've opened the door so that you can come in. And no one can shut that. No one can make a declaration that, that, that you're not mine. That's not possible. I've opened a door. Isn't that a, a powerful image? To think that, that Jesus, when Jesus came into this world, he came from heaven, came to where we are. He didn't just come and sort of live a nice life to say that he'd been with us. Like He really came into the mess of, of real life. He, he suffered, he struggled, he, he was uh, lied about, he was um, you know, ultimately betrayed and he went to the cross, but it wasn't an accident, it was part of God's plan that he should experience something that he did not deserve to create a way for us to be able to come to God. When Jesus died on the cross, several things happened. The gospels tell us about one of them was that in the temple, this great big curtain there was this thick thick curtain that separated the special place where God's presence was from the people when Jesus died that curtain ripped from top to bottom like the doorway was opened up and it was access was there it's like come on in you can come to God now And it's like Jesus is saying to this this church who are getting kind of beaten down and talked about and criticized and they're starting to feel a little bit like, well, we're so weak, why would God love us? And Jesus is saying, I've made a huge open doorway for you to come to me. No one can shut it. No one can talk me out of it. Nobody can change it. It's there and it's for you. That's the invitation that we get to come to God, have a relationship with him, not have our sins counted against us, but come and find life as it was meant to be. That's how he begins the letter. But notice what he says next. In verse eight, uh, second half of the verse, he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. What he's saying there is, look, I understand how you feel about yourselves. I understand that you don't feel very powerful. I know that. You're weak. I know that. And yet you've been faithful to me. You've not denied my name, you've, you've kept my word, you've listened to what I say in scripture, you know, what the Bible says, you've listened to it and you've applied it and even when everyone around you is giving you a hard time, you say, you know what, Jesus said it, I believe it, that settles it, I'm doing it and you just kind of follow through and it's not impressive and it's not powerful and the world's not going, whoa, check them out. You're just plodding along, faithfully keeping my word and honoring me and I recognize that. The church before this was Sardis. Sardis was impressive. Think mega church. Everything about it looked powerful. Everything about it, you know, sometimes you turn the TV on, you see some of those churches, you think, oh, imagine what it must be like to be part of something so huge. Sardis was the impressive church. Laodicea, that comes next, which means it's just down the road, that was the rich church. They all rolled up in their Lexuses. Like they lived, right? They had the stuff. They had the bling. And you could look at the church in Laodicea and go, oh, God's really blessing them. And So you go that way and there's Laodicea and they're super rich. And you go that way and there's Sardis and it's mega impressive. And then you come to church in Philadelphia and you go, oh, it's kind of small. It's kind of weak. I was with my dad in Italy a couple of weeks ago and we went to several churches and they're tiny, I mean, like, this block here of seats is about the size of the building, you know, these places, and just minute, just a shop front, and a few chairs, you know, and a, a kind of a keyboard, and, and they're faithful. They, they just keep on going in, the, in a town, in a culture that doesn't respond, that doesn't really want to know what they're doing, that thinks they're weird. They're, they must be so discouraging, and they just keep going. And I think it's such an encouragement to know that for Jesus... Our faithfulness is more important than our success. Jesus doesn't look at a a little church of Italian Christians and say, well, they're not very successful. They should be more like this thing in America. Jesus looks and he sees their faithfulness. Jesus looks at us and he sees our faithfulness. He sees when you're doing kids club and you're like, seriously, I, I haven't got the energy or the time for this, but you put the time in and you find the energy and you prepare you're in crash, and you're thinking, oh, I could so do with just staying in church this week, but you're in crash and, and you go and do it and you do it with a good attitude. When you're during the week and you're reading your Bible and you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's convicting. I should do something different about what it says there. I should change in light of that. And it's, it's so much easier just to go, oh, never mind. But but you read your Bible and you put it into practice and you go to work and someone says something and, and, and it's tempting just to hide and instead you say, well, actually, I'm a Christian. And then the bit that follows doesn't go very well and you kick yourself and you feel like such a loser and you know, you go on a bus or on a plane or on a train and the person next to you get into a conversation and, and it comes around to the point where you can you know, talk about Jesus and tell them and you s- sort of say something and you fumble. Anybody ever fumble in those situations? And you go, oh, that was terrible, Jesus. I'm so sorry, what was I thinking? And, and yet you've been faithful and you've tried and you've, you've, you've stood for him. Everyone in the room at work is saying, yeah, we believe in this and we agree with this change of law, or whatever. And you go, well, actually, I don't. And everyone looks at you and like dagger glares and you feel like such a weirdo. And you go, no, actually, that's wrong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand. And then no one listens, and there's no follow-up, and people don't fall on their knees saying, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You just kind of stood for Jesus, and it's been awkward. Ever experienced these things? You feel kind of small, you feel kind of weak, you feel like no one understands, and Jesus is watching. And he says, you've been faithful, and I know that. I know you're weak. It's not, not a surprise to me. But you're faithful, you've kept my word, you've honored my name. And then he talks about the context. And I just want to focus us in on that for uh, five minutes and then we'll, we'll be soon finishing the message because that's really, uh, that's really the heart of it is they've been faithful even though they're weak and Jesus is pleased. But then in verse nine, he goes into this detail about the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. It's a real glimpse into a specific circumstance that reflects a circumstance every one of us faces. Jesus could have said, in your town there's a synagogue full of Jews who are not very nice and I don't approve of what they're doing, end of story. But instead he says they are a synagogue of Satan. He's giving Satan, if you like, the credit for the nastiness. What Jesus is saying here is that your faithfulness in your weakness, you're standing for me and keeping my word, you're your taking one step after another in difficult circumstances is in the context of a spiritual battle. It's not just other people, it's spiritual. The Bible talks about the fact that this world is a great battle zone that there are those who are standing for good and are declaring the truth, but there are also forces of evil that are working against that. Sometimes we, we, we sense in our culture kind of a excitement about the paranormal. Notice that, the supernatural. There's been a kind of a shift towards that and it's often quite sinister and gory. But it's just reflecting a reality and the reality is that behind what we can see there is a whole realm that we cannot see there's god who's working by his spirit through his people in the world but there's also satan and the bible talks about satan as being an angel that fell from heaven an angel that rebelled against god and he came into this world and the bible refers to him as having incredible power it talks about him being the god of this age the prince of the power of the air. There's all these titles that are given to him. And Satan is real and he is really at work and he really hates us. And with him, there's a whole kind of host uh, or ranks of of his uh, minions, whatever you want to call them. If you like, the demonic forces of evil. And our problem is that we live in the West and we think that all this stuff is just, kind of science fiction it's just kind of weird it's you know it's, it's for the pagans on the other side of the planet but the reality is that satan is at work and there are forces of evil out to trip us up in some ways it makes sense of a whole lot of things doesn't it it makes sense of how you keep getting hit with the same thing day after day after day and you're like where is that coming from I've never shared with anybody, I've never told anybody how much I struggle with that and yet it keeps coming and hitting me, then it stops for a while, then it comes back and the temptation is there again and you think, it's almost like it's planned. Maybe it is. C.S. Lewis, remember C.S. Lewis wrote um, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. He also wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. And in this book, he's kind of fictionalizing or imagining uh, an uncle demon to a nephew demon. And he's kind of explaining to the nephew demon how to trip up the Christians, how to make life difficult for them, how to kind of do everything possible to make their life tough, but to stay in the shadows, to not be too obvious, to not step out and sort of declare himself. And C.S. Lewis was able to give an insight into what the Bible describes is the realm that we live in. I don't know how much we've talked about spiritual warfare at Trinity over the past three, three and a half years, but we need to be aware of it. We need to recognize that as, as much as we enjoy what God's doing here and we celebrate what God's doing here, Satan hates what God's doing here. And the forces of evil will do whatever they are allowed to do to trip us up. They'll go after us individually, try and get us to to compromise, try and get us to not pick up our Bibles, try and stop us from praying, try to make us rely on ourselves, try to make us comfortable, or try to make us worried, or try to make us uh, trip up and fall into sin. The forces of evil work against our marriages, wanting to tear us apart and lead us to others and create division and breakdown. They want to harm our children. They want to get our children distracted and going in different directions instead of really understanding the gospel and living for Jesus. They want to work against us. And if it weren't for the fact that God is in charge, if it weren't for the fact that Jesus holds the key and when he opens a door, nobody can shut it, if it weren't for the fact that that God is on the throne, we would have every reason to be absolutely petrified. Because the forces of evil would take us down in a heartbeat. But I always think of Satan and uh, the demon, demonic realm. I always think of them being a bit like a dog on a chain lots of bark, quite a nasty bite, but a limit remember years ago walking down the road with my brother-in-law, we were distributing things uh, like invitations to something and this dog, I don't know, it was kind of like a Rottweiler, Staffordshire pit bull, Alsatian, German shepherd, like angry wolf cross, right? It, it just charged down the, uh, down the garden path towards us and like snarling and it was like something out of Narnia but, but, you know, worse. And it was charging towards us and I saw the chain and my brother-in-law didn't. And it was quite funny. I'd love to watch a video when I get to heaven of that moment. It's not my top priority, but I want to say, hey, can I watch that? Because I want to see Dan's reaction again because it was hilarious. I saw the chain, so I was still a little bit, you know, the adrenaline's going when a dog's about to eat you. But I could see that it was going to hit its chain, and I was okay. So I kept walking. Dan took off. Like, he literally took off into the air and was grabbing for his knife. He works with trees. He's not a criminal. But he was grabbing for his knife, ready to guard himself against this beast that was trying to kill him. And then I said, Dan, he's on a chain. He's like, okay, okay. And it took him about half an hour for the adrenaline to come down. I think it's important to remember that, that when we think about the forces of evil, Satan, before God in the book of Job, was told limits. I'll let you do this, but you can't do that. I'll let you do this, but don't touch his body. I'll let you do this, but don't destroy his life. Satan's limited. Satan's limited. He's not able to just take us out and destroy us, but he is able to do some things. And we're living our lives, small church, small people, faithfully plodding away, trying to keep God's word, trying to honor the name of Jesus, and we're doing it in the context of the attacks of the enemy. We need to be alert to that. We need to be aware, we need to be prayerful, we need to not be naive, It's just so so easy when, when you've got someone in your ear convincing you that that sin is not a problem, that God would understand in your circumstance, that it doesn't apply to you. It's not just you thinking that, you've got a conversation partner and it's not God. You've got somebody there encouraging you to just go ahead and do that thing. Just go ahead and take that step. Nobody will know. It doesn't matter. Just go for it. You deserve it. And we've got a very willing conversation partner to encourage us to absolutely blow it. Jesus holds the key. What he opens, no one can shut. He's in charge. Let's look to him and trust him. Let's keep our eyes on him and be faithful to him in the little things as well as the big things. Let's be encouraged. Maybe you're you're feeling worn down by temptation or worn down by your own weakness. And and it's almost like, oh what's, what's the point? Maybe I'll just no, no, no. Don't maybe just anything. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep living for him, one decision at a time. Keep saying, No, I'll do the right thing. I'll honor him. I'll do what he asks. Even if I don't like it, I'll do what he asks. Because he can be trusted in the next verse in verse 10 uh, Jesus describes this time of suffering that's going to come on the whole earth like there's a major thing coming and there's a couple of ways of of viewing verse 10 it could be that that this particular church is about to face something that isn't just in that town but there's like a a sort of empire-wide persecution coming which there was Or it's possible that it's referring to future, ultimate, end times kind of suffering. And there's different ways of interpreting it and understanding it. But the point is that Jesus says, whether he's talking about like in three years time or he's talking about hundreds of years time, the point is he says, I will keep you from it. I'll protect you. I'll guard you. I'll take you out from it. And so there's comfort there. There's encouragement that we don't have to go into a trial that is impossible to survive. There isn't a storm coming that's guaranteed to wipe us out. Jesus says, no, no, I'll keep you from that. And so as we come towards the end of the letter, they're in this context of spiritual warfare. They're facing significant trials. And Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. That's such an encouragement for Christians, isn't it? When you're hanging in there and you're kind of keeping on going and it feels like this is endless and Jesus says, I, I'm coming soon, I'm coming back soon, look for me. And he says, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown." And, and then he gives the promise. Now think about this promise to a bunch of weak Christians in a town with cracked walls, who live outside the town because of earthquakes and have been let down and betrayed by the Caesar that they've tried to honor. Jesus says this, to the one who conquers, that is to the person who trusts me and just keeps on keeping on, just faithfully living for me day by day, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Isn't that beautiful? In God's temple, he will be like a pillar, solid, established. The one thing that you know in a temple is that the pillars aren't leaving. They're permanent. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'll do for you. You just trust me. Be faithful to me. I'm going to make you permanent in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Never will you have to go camping on the outside because you're worried that on the inside the roof's gonna fall on your head. Jesus is offering them promises that that would resonate with their fears. He's saying you'll be permanent like a pillar. You'll not need to go outside because of earthquakes or anything like that. And then he says, I will write on him the name, not of some Caesar who's gonna change his mind and stab you in the back, the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. It's like Jesus is trying to overwhelm them. This church gets something like seven promises. It's like not one promise isn't enough. These people are weak. They need lots of encouragement. And it's like he's saying, okay, you're gonna be this pillar and you're not gonna go outside and you're gonna have names stamped on you owned by God, belonging in the new Jerusalem, owned by Jesus with his new name, whatever that is. And so you've got all these kind of stamps of identification. Just think about the the, the permanence of all of that, how secure that would have made them feel. You're not on the edge of collapse. You're not on the edge of of falling away. You're not about to find the door slammed shut in your face. Why? Why? Because what it says in verse nine. These people that are antagonistic to you one day are gonna come and they're gonna bow at your feet. Not because you know, you're kind of being worshipped or anything like that, but because you're with Jesus. And they're gonna bow before Jesus because in the end, every knee will bow to Jesus and, and you're gonna, they're gonna be there. And what are they gonna discover? That I have loved you. I have loved you isn't that beautiful those four words you feel weak you feel beaten down you feel tempted you feel tempted to compromise you feel tempted to sell out you feel like it's not going to work this church isn't going to last oh my goodness and jesus says just be faithful and in the end everyone will know that i have loved you i'm going to make it abundantly clear i'm going to declare it before the universe i have loved you that's an invitation isn't it an invitation to carry on being faithful an invitation to trust jesus for the things that we're facing and what i'd encourage us to do is this i'm going to ask us two questions and i'd love us to have a little chat just in in groups where we are before the band comes up and we we sing to finish but the first question i don't want you to answer in the group first question might be a good question to take home and think about Maybe chat to your spouse, that would be a good conversation. But you know, you you choose where to chat about it. If I were the devil and I wanted to destroy me, not Peter, but yourself, I'll think of it for me, you think of it for you. If I were the devil and I wanted to destroy me or I wanted to take me out or trip me up, what would I do? What would my strategy be? It's a good thing to think through, a good thing to pray about. But what I'd like us to chat about now, just for a couple of minutes, just where where we're sat, twos, threes, fours, whatever. If I was the devil and I wanted to hurt this church, I wanted to do damage to this church, what would my strategy be? Let's chat about that together. Let's think about that, not because we want to glorify the devil in any way, but because we want to be faithful to Jesus. And part of that is probably going to involve recognizing how he could come, Satan this is, and do damage to us. So feel free to to break into whatever groups you like. We haven't got long, we're going to be singing soon. But just think out loud, if I were the devil, how would I take this church out of commission?